for TV, but it was during a test similar to that that a reporter asked one of the Mercedes-Benz spokespeople, uh, why do you not enforce your patent on this design? Because so many competitors have used this same design because it's so successful uh, in their own cars. And the spokesperson very quickly gave this answer. There's some things in life that are just too important not to share. And I'm not the first person to use this sermon illustration. It's been used many, many times. But I couldn't help but think of that sermon illustration when I was looking at the text that Ben spoke on last week. And that last phrase in verse 15, I guess it's kind of in the middle of verse 15 in Romans 1, where Paul says, I am so eager to preach the gospel. And I couldn't help but think over and over and over about Paul's eagerness. And then think of how often I've passed by opportunities. How often I've shown my lack of eagerness to preach the gospel. And yet I've got something so much more important to share uh, than a patent for a car and how to uh, survive better uh, a crash. What was it about the gospel that made Paul so eager to share it? So eager that he planned trips around sharing the gospel. Well, this morning we're going to get to continue in our series from the book of Romans, uh, the I Am Unashamed series. And we're going to look at two verses this morning, verses uh, 16 uh, and 17. And I'm going to have them on behind me, but I'd encourage you to open your Bible and just leave uh, your Bible uh, open as we look at the uh, two verses this morning. In fact, I'd encourage you to bring your own Bible if you got one, and if you don't get one from us on Sunday mornings, because be a great uh, opportunity to start writing notes and mark up your Bible and, and uh, help you as you take the text home and, and look at it uh, for yourself. So verses 16 and 17, let me read them to you. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And these two verses are transitional verses. Uh, We find them in the middle between the introduction to the letter and then the balance uh, of the body uh, of the letter. And they actually tie into the introduction because Paul's explaining why he is so eager to share the gospel. Uh, In the original language, and I think I've got it on the screen. Yes, I put the word for, because that's in the original language. Paul's actually saying, for I am unashamed. So why is Paul eager to preach the gospel? For, or because, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And so it ties into the introduction that we've looked at so far. But it also ties into the balance of the letter. Because in these two verses, Paul picks up the gospel that he's mentioned. He's dropped the word gospel two or three times in the first 15 verses. And so he picks up the theme of the gospel. uh, And he's going to start to unfold uh, the gospel for us. And so it ties into the beginning. Explains why Paul is so eager to preach the gospel. But then it explains how this gospel can transform a person's life, which is what the balance of the book uh, is about. And it's got a very uh, intentional structure in these two verses. Because each phrase in verse 16 and 17 
responds to the phrase before. And so in verse 15, Paul says, I'm so eager to preach the gospel. Well, why? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, Paul, why are you not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God to save people. Well, how is that possible, Paul? Because the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Well, is that something new, Paul? No. As it's written, the righteous will live by faith. And someone has said that if we can understand what Paul is saying in these two verses, we have a great skeleton on which to build our understanding of the gospel. So my my intention this morning and and my prayer is that we'll leave really having grappled and having a better understanding of what Paul uh, is getting across in these two verses because it will help us as we look at the rest of his letter. But a question. If you look at the verse, I am not ashamed kind of an awkward way to start a a sentence. Why in the negative? Why does Paul word it that way? There's a couple of reasons. One, it could just strictly be a literary uh, issue. Uh, And I think I put the word up on the screen. I don't even know how to pronounce it, but it looked good, so I put it up there. You You can read it. It's a literary device conveying a positive message. And so if we go back to our theme from two weeks ago, the piece of pie, You give me a good good piece of pie and I eat it, I might say to you, boy, that's not a bad piece of pie. Meaning, that is a good piece of pie. And so what Paul is saying here is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, I am proud of the gospel. I triumph in the gospel. I glory in the gospel. And we got to remember, Paul is under fire from some people. He's under fire because some people are accusing him of having an pro-Gentile, anti-Jew gospel. And what Paul is saying to them, I'm not ashamed of the gospel that I'm going to preach. But there's another reason that I want to suggest. In 13 letters that we have from Paul, he's never said that he's ashamed. Never once does he mention his shame for the gospel. But Paul is a realist. He recognizes that the message that he is preaching probably isn't the first message that his audience necessarily is looking to hear. Paul, a Jewish man, going to sophisticated and educated Rome to preach about a Galilean-born carpenter, prophet, who's executed in the most humiliating way by the Romans, probably isn't going to hit the ears well of a lot of the Roman audience who's going to hear him preach the gospel. He isn't primarily giving uh, economic or social or political solutions to the, the massive problems the average Roman might be experiencing. Rather, Paul is bringing to them the message that they need to hear. Because Paul knows that their greatest problem is that their sin keeps them from having a relationship with God. It's what Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel that I'm going to bring because I know it's the greatest need of everyone who's going to hear my message. Paul also realizes that his Christian brothers and sisters who are going to be reading this letter, who are going to be hearing him preach, who 2,000 years later are going to be hearing someone else preach on his letter. Paul realizes 
that we may not be on the same page of eagerness uh, as Paul is. And Paul realizes that this message about God becoming man, being born by a virgin, and then being executed on a cross, and raising from the dead three days later, and then going back to heaven, and going to come back in a future day, might not necessarily be a message, again, that those who would consider themselves to be sophisticated and educated uh, are going to want to hear initially, uh, anyways. I mean, Paul admits elsewhere that, that the message of the cross, the gospel, it's an offensive message. To some, it's foolishness. To a Roman, they wouldn't even be executed on a cross. Roman citizens weren't crucified on a cross. That was a humiliating way to die. For the Jew, it was a shameful way to die. And that that was Paul's message. And so he realized that his message was going to be seen by many to be foolish, to be offensive. And to preach that kind of message was to invite trouble. If you lived in Rome, where people worshipped the emperor, for you to say that Jesus is the only way was to ask for the death penalty. People didn't like Christians. People especially didn't like Jewish Christians. They were despised. They were ridiculed. And so what Paul's saying here is despite the opposition, despite the intimidation, despite the ridicule, the persecution, regardless of what someone else can do to me, I'm not ashamed of the gospel that I've come to preach. And what is it about that gospel message that accounts for Paul's eagerness, his unapologetic, unashamed, bold uh, resolve to preach the good news of Jesus wherever he went? Well, this morning in these two verses, which we could probably give 50 answers to that question, I'm going to try to keep it to two answers to the question. And I want to try to help you to understand verse 16 and verse 17 in those two answers. And the first answer to that question is found in the second part of verse 16. The gospel is the God, sorry, the gospel is the divinely appointed way by which God brings salvation to the world. See what he says in 16. Uh, He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So it is the way that God is going to bring salvation to the world. That's why he's not ashamed of the gospel. That's why he eagerly wants to preach the gospel. And I think we need to go back a couple of weeks ago to the definition on gospel. Mary Jane, if you can put those up. So the good news that God declares sinners righteous when they trust in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on their behalf, or maybe an easier definition, the one that I remember, uh, is that the gospel is the good news about Jesus and the difference that he can make when he comes into your life through faith. And so in verse 16, Paul mentions a couple of words that we need to understand. First of all, he's talking about salvation. I think it's a pretty common word that we understand the word salvation. 
But there's a lot that Paul is packing into that word salvation. Uh, It's a very important word in the letter to the Romans. It's a very important word for us to understand so that we understand what Paul is saying about the gospel. And I think for many of us, when we think of the word salvation, I know for myself, uh, often I define it as the moment in time when I am delivered from the wrath and the judgment uh, that I deserve because of my sin. And so we'll often ask a person, well, when were you saved? And usually we'll try to think of the day and the time that we ask Jesus into our heart. We asked him to forgive us our sins. And that's what salvation means here, but it means so much more. It also talks about uh, the deliverance from the power of sin as we grow in godliness. Uh, it also refers to the, the deliverance from the presence of sin when we find ourselves in the presence of God in glory. And then it has uh, more positive meanings. Uh, it, salvation refers to our being in right standing with God. Uh, our salvation refers to the blessings that we receive through our faith in Christ. And so we have this word salvation. And Paul says it's the gospel which is the appointed way by which God brings salvation to the world. But the word salvation, the need for salvation, has to indicate something to us. And that is that there is a need for salvation. In fact, Paul would say that's the greatest need of every man and every woman. We need salvation. And we're going to see as we go through the letter that we need salvation because all of us fall short of a standard. All of us have sinned. No matter how we try, hard we try to live up to God's standards, we can't have a right relationship with God. We fall short. It's just the truth. And that's why Paul's so eager. That's why Paul's willing to face any opposition. Because that's the greatest need that any human being has. They need to be saved. They need to be saved from the problem and the penalty and the consequences of sin. We're going to talk about it as I conclude my message. Paul realized that was man and woman's greatest need. And he was determined to share it. And I want you to start thinking of whether that's the kind of of life that, that you're living where you are demonstrating an eagerness to share. I was thinking, you know, if I was walking, even to a person I don't even know, and I saw that, uh, you know, maybe they had a, a cut on the back of their neck, or, you know, so- something was disheveled about their clothes, I wouldn't think twice of saying, hey, you know, you, you got a little cut there. You may want to deal with that. You know, maybe I can get you a Band-Aid and you can fix it. And yet we have people surrounding us who are facing the greatest need and how often we can remain silent. But Paul wouldn't, because he realized salvation was the greatest need. And then he says that, that the gospel is the power of God, bringing salvation to those who believe. You see, the gospel doesn't just tell us about God's power. It is God's power. And that makes me think of two things. One, it makes me think of a... Of a uh, A misperception that I'm sure many of us are familiar with. That being that the gospel or Christianity is for wimps. 
It is a weak religion designed for weak people. And there might be one little grain of truth in that phrase. If you want to say that designed and appointed are kind of similar words, yes, the gospel is for weak, helpless, hopeless people. But it's powerful. It has the ability to transform a person's life, to give a person a hope and a future. The gospel unleashes the very power and blessing of God. Which leads us to a misconception or a a misunderstanding, which is this, that there are many ways that a person can realize or achieve or affect salvation. The reality is, it's only the power of God that can bring salvation. It's not something that we can do ourselves, no matter how hard we try. If we could do it ourselves, then Jesus didn't need to die on the cross. Our salvation is possible because the power of God is able to give life to that which is dead. And we can't do that ourselves. Only the power of God can make that kind of life change possible. And so what that means is that the message of the gospel, the gospel, it's not an option. It's not advice that we can choose to follow or not to follow. It's not a menu by which we choose what we like and we, we, we refuse what we don't like. The gospel is God's power whereby he takes someone who is dead in their sin and implants life. It's the power of God. And this salvation, it's available to all. In that phrase in verse 16, we could go on for hours talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. I'll leave that for you. Suffice it to say, this gospel, this power of God that can save people, is available to everyone, young or old. Doesn't matter what race, doesn't matter what gender, doesn't matter what economic uh, class you find yourself in. It's available to all. It's available to all who believe. No strings attached, no other conditions. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, this new life is available to those who believe. And we can look at the letters that Paul writes and and talk about the Judaizers and who wanted to add all these works to the gospel and go, shame, shame, shame. But you know, we can be guilty of the same. Sometimes we expect that people will add the responsibilities of a disciple to their conversion. Or we expect people to clean themselves up before they put their faith and belief in Jesus. But the truth of the gospel is this. Jesus plus anything else is nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And of course that means that we have to understand what it means to believe. And maybe you're not sure, well, what does the word believe mean? Well, uh, Dr. Ray Pritchard, um, 
writes on that. I'm just going to quote him because he says it so much better than I could. Talking about belief, he says, Belief occurs when you trust in someone else. If you know what it means to believe a doctor when he or she says you need surgery, you know what it means to believe. If you know what it means to step into an airplane and trusting your safety to the captain in the cockpit, you know what it means to believe. If you know what it means to ask a lawyer to plead your case in court, you know what it means to believe. Belief is a complete reliance upon another person to do that which you could never do for yourself. It's trusting in this person because you are persuaded of his or her promise. And you see how different the gospel is from any other world philosophy or religion. That will have a long list of requirements, might involve money, repeated phrases. But the gospel is all about what God's done for us. He initiates it. He's the catalyst. And it's by his power we're saved. So what accounts for Paul's eagerness? What accounts for the fact that he's not ashamed of the gospel? First of all, it's because the gospel is the divinely appointed way whereby God is going to bring salvation to the world. And then in verse 17, we come to a second answer. And that second answer is this, that it's in the gospel we see God at work saving those who put their faith in Jesus. Now that's a paraphrased of verse 17. In verse 17, it says, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so we come to this very important phrase for us to understand Uh, to understand what Paul is going to be talking about as he continues in the letter to the Romans. The righteousness of God. And one of the words that I always trip over when I'm preparing sermons is the word righteous and righteousness. What does it mean? And so many times I've had to go back and just try to understand what that word means. And Paul uses this word, and the problem is he doesn't define it. He doesn't say the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, and let me just explain to you what the righteousness of God is. He doesn't. Because the word righteousness was a common word to a Roman citizen back when Paul wrote. For Paul and his Roman audience, the Christians in Rome, they would have been very familiar with righteousness language. Because in the Greek Old Testament, God's righteousness is mentioned, I think, almost 50 times. And so when we see the words righteousness of God or God's righteousness, it has a, a, quite a broad meaning. And each of the options of meaning finds itself at work in Paul's letter to the Romans. And in verse 17, a couple of the options are working on what Paul is saying in verse 17. So maybe that really just confused you, but let me try to explain it a little bit better. So what does the righteousness of God or God's righteousness refer to? The first option, it's speaking of an attribute of God. And so in the Old Testament, you'll read about the righteousness of God, and it would talk about his justice. And that's what freaked Martin Luther out. 
Because he understood the righteousness of God to refer to God's justice. And Martin Luther was obsessed with how he could find himself in a proper relationship with a God who is righteous, who is just. And that's why Martin Luther practically killed himself trying to live up to the standard where God would say, you know what? You're righteous too. You're in right standing because of the way that you're living. Another attribute is that of faithfulness. So God's righteousness speaks of his faithfulness to his promises. And so what Paul could be saying here is that in the gospel is revealed the justice and the faithfulness of God. And I think there's some truth to that. A second option of what righteousness of God means is it talks about an activity of God. Specifically, a saving activity of God. And so when you look in Psalms uh, and in Isaiah, the righteousness of God usually refers to God's saving intervention uh, and vindication of his people. And so what Paul could be saying here is that in the gospel is revealed the saving activity of God coming to deliver and to intervene and to vindicate his people. Then the third option is that God's righteousness refers to a status that God gives to another person, making them right. And so what Paul could be saying here is that in the gospel is revealed God giving a status of righteousness to another person. So what most believe is happening in verse 17 is those latter two. That in verse 17, Paul is saying, in the gospel, we see God at work, saving those and giving them a status of righteous, justifying them, declaring that they're innocent and forgiven by putting their faith in Jesus. And so what Martin Luther wanted to know is, how can I have a connection with the righteousness of God? And it was when he came to verse 17 and he realized that he could have a connection with the righteousness of God, that he could have a part in the saving work of God, that he could have this status that God gives to those. He realized it was by faith. And he let out a big sigh of relief. And that's the great news of the gospel. That God is at work. Saving those who by faith. Put their trust in the person and work of Jesus. And so just like having to understand what it means to believe. We need to understand what what faith means when Paul says faith. And when he says faith, it requires faith. Faith means that we understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We acknowledge that, yes, we have a sin problem. And we realize that our sin alienates us from God, keeps us out of a relationship with God, that we need to confess that sin. We need forgiveness of that sin. So we understand what Jesus has done. We understand what our problem is. And then we commit ourselves to the person and work of Jesus. And we trust in what he has done for us, for our eternal life. And as Paul will say when we get to Romans 12, then the logical thing to do 
is to commit ourselves and to follow him as Lord. There's a whole lot more we could say about verse 17, uh, but I'm going to leave it because I want to end with three closing thoughts. Um, first of all, as a question, what gospel are you trusting? And you might be here and you're, you know that you're a follower of Jesus and you're going, okay, Brent's talking to the other people. But I'm not. I'm talking to everybody. Whether you're a follower of Jesus, you're not a follower of Jesus, or you know you're rejecting Jesus, or you're not really even sure what I'm even talking about. What gospel are you trusting? Because there are a lot of people like Martin Luther who are tired, frustrated, disappointed, trying, striving, working so hard to make ourselves appear to be worthy to be in a relationship with God, to meet God's expectations, to meet God's regulations. And that goes for Christians and those of you who aren't following Jesus. Because there's some of you who might be here this morning going, God would never want anything to do with me. I'm not good enough. There's too much baggage. If people here only knew the real me, they probably wouldn't want me sitting in here. Hear the truth of the gospel. None of us, not one of us in here, no matter how hard we strive, can ever in and of ourselves make us worthy. Make ourselves worthy. Make ourselves good enough. Meet the standards. Earn a right standing with God. That's the truth of the gospel. But hear the grace of the gospel. God has done the work. We can stop our striving. He has seen fit to make a way that we can be forgiven. That we can be declared innocent. That we can have a right standing relationship with him. That we can be made righteous in his son. So stop your striving. And find rest in putting your trust. And your faith in the person and work of Jesus. The second question. Are you living like you're embarrassed, ashamed, apologetic of the gospel? And if there's been one challenge greater than any challenge to me studying this text, it's that question. So I asked it to you, but it's mainly because I've been asking myself. We went to Great Wolf Lodge this week, and on the way there, we stopped at a subway in uh, Grimsby. And... It was just our family and a couple of others. And the, the girl behind the counter had a tattoo on her arm. And I could tell it was a fish. And I thought I could see a cross in it, but there was writing underneath it. And so I was a little tentative to ask her to show me her tattoo in case it was something poking fun at Christianity. But seeing that it was a relatively small crowd, I, I asked her, so what's your tattoo say? And she showed it to me. And it was the, the Christian fish with the cross in it and said, for God so loved the world. I went like Don Cherry, and uh, she smiled. 
I don't know what her mindset was. Maybe she's embarrassed that she put it on her arm, or maybe she's real bold, or maybe she just liked the encouragement. And I, after that, I thought, boy, I'd love to get a tattoo like that. I'd put it right there so everyone could see. But then I started thinking of situations. And people who I know would then see it on my arm. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll go with her idea. And I'll put it there. So if I need to, I can just kind of walk like that or wear a long sleeve. But then I kept thinking of situations and relationships and times where that might be a bit awkward too. And by the time I stopped thinking of it, I probably had it on my back because I don't really go anywhere without a shirt on so that no one could see it. And I thought, why am I ashamed? Why do I have a tendency to apologize, be awkward about my faith? And and maybe you can relate to these. I just thought of some of the situations. How often do I pass by the opportunity that's presented like a big silver platter in front of me to share the gospel and I pass it by? How awkward and bashful am I when I go into a restaurant? Pray when no one's looking. Go into Tim's to work on a sermon and have my Bible underneath my notepad as I walk in. I see Vanessa here. I remember Vanessa being at your restaurant with Chance uh, Chance Faulkner, helping him work through a passage one of the first times he was speaking. And sitting in one of your tables with someone sitting right here and sitting right there and Chance is as bold as they come, and he's got this Bible that must have weighed 50 pounds opened right in front of him. And he's just, you know, so Brent, what does this text mean? What do you think it means? And I'm watching these people. I can't forget that time. Because I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. Just sharing our faith with our family. Standing at the back and, and talking about our faith. Why at times does it seem awkward? Sharing everything about my life with people I rub shoulders with all the time, but my faith. Candy coating the gospel. Why do we candy coat the gospel? Why do we just preach the positive things? Peace, love, hope, eternal life. And yet we minimize the negative. Some people have just shut the negative right off. Judgment, wrath, sin. When we, when we have to sell the gospel, we're perverting the gospel. Because we're downplaying the need of a savior. We're minimizing the work of Jesus on the cross. We're minimizing the need for a substitute. For a sacrifice. We can candy coat it so much that Jesus might as well not have rose from the dead. Because it's not really necessary. Why do we apologize about our faith? We can be so apologetic. Greg, I remember your, the day of your baptism. And I said to you at the back, or maybe it was when we were praying on Tuesday together, and I said, oh, well, you had a bunch of friends there. Boy, I hope I didn't go too hard at them uh, with the, the need to be saved. And he said, don't worry, Brent. He said, these days I'm throwing Bibles at people. Uh, man, I need that boldness. Why do we apologize? I, t- I tell you about that tattoo from the girl at Subway. At the Great Wolf Lodge, I saw a lot of tattoos. And they're not ashamed. They're not apologizing for what they're saying on their tattoos. 
People don't stutter when they swear. They're not clearing their throat when they tell dirty jokes. Why should we apologize when we're declaring the power of God, which will give them eternal life? And yet we do, and why? Why is that our tendency? Why can't we be like Paul? Well, things aren't different than Paul's day. We have a message that's not always going to be well-received because it, it, it points out the sin the rationalizations, the hopelessness of people. And because it points that out, they're going to respond in hostility at times towards us. And who likes to lose face? Who likes to lose friends? Who likes to lose influence? I don't. But it didn't stop Paul. I think what, what affects me the most is that I know in my own heart, and maybe in yours too, that there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect between the power and the implications of the gospel and and the reality and, and, and the impact it's making in my life. And because of that disconnect, there's times I'm ashamed, there's times I'm embarrassed, there's times I'm apologetic, there's a time that I'm awkward. And what, what can we do? My third, final, closing thought. What can we do? As, as one commentator said, how can we turn the gospel power on? First, we've got to make sure we're trusting the right gospel. Second, we need to pray for opportunities and pray for boldness. Dwight Moody used to say that the gospel's like a caged lion. All we've got to do is open the door and watch out. How often do we pray for opportunities to share the gospel? Third, we need to cultivate the passion. I don't think newly engaged or newly expected couples have to go to a class to learn how to be excited and share the fact that they just got engaged or they're going to have a baby. We need to cultivate that same passion, passion to ask God to give us that, that passion that we had the day that we gave our life to him. And then fourth, and on this I'm going to close and it's going to kind of transition to what Richard is going to share We need to share our stories. Our successes and our failures. Because lately around here, when I hear Greg and I hear Matt, and I hear Dave and Josh, I hear the people from Teen Challenge, and some of you share your stories, it inspires me. It challenges me. And it encourages me. We need to share our stories of the opportunities that God has given us to share the greatest news that Jesus can transform our lives if we'll let him in and accept what he's done for us.